Well, hey, welcome, church. It's really good to be in the house of the Lord with you this afternoon. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been in a sermon series called Following Jesus, and we're studying through Matthew 8 to 10, and I actually want to just get right into it today because we have three miracle stories to cover once again. And uh, if you remember, when we started this series, we asked this question, are you ready to follow Jesus? Because in this sermon series, what I believe Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to paint for us a clear picture of what discipleship looks like so that you can then ask yourself this question, like, am I really a disciple? Am I really following him based on the images given to me here? Uh, and if you're not, then are you ready? Are you ready to follow after him? You know, last week, Pastor Joyce gave a, 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 just an incredible message on the cost of discipleship and really asking us, are we ready to pay the cost uh, to really follow after Jesus? And this week, uh, as we mentioned in week one, uh, we're going to be talking about three more miracle stories. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, turn there with me, Matthew 8. We're going to be looking at verses 23 all the way into chapter 9, uh, verse 8. Okay, so we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, if at this time, if you're able, would you rise as we read God's word together? Uh, I'll read this for us. Uh, I'll end the reading with this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God. Uh, and then I'll pray for us and then I'll seat you after the reading of God's word. This is the reading of God's word. And when he got into the boat, that's Jesus, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the host, uh, but so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, "Save us, Lord! We are perishing." And he said to them, "Why are you afraid, O you of little faith?" Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marvelled, saying, "What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him?" And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven.'" And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Let me go ahead and pray for you, and then I'll seat you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Lord, at this time, may you help us to understand just who you are. And God, in light of who you are, Lord, may we live out our discipleship, God, faithfully to you. God, would you stir in our hearts? Would you send your Holy Spirit to really work in us now? We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. 
Uh, so when I was uh, putting together this sermon series, I was assigning passages to all of our pastors. If you know, um, we, we have a lot of our pastors on staff that are going to be speaking. For example, David Lee, our worship pastor who was singing right here, he's actually going to be speaking next week. So uh, come out for that. This is his first time ever preaching, ever, uh, and as well as the first time at our church. But I decided to assign myself all of the healing stories. And I don't know why I did this. I did all the miracle stories. So there's 10 miracle stories within a span of three chapters, okay? And so I decided this is going to be the summer of miracles for me, okay? Just miracle after miracle after miracle. And one of the things I was kind of like, um, not dreading, but something that I was just kind of uh, thinking through was like, how am I going to preach on so many miracles? Like, what am I going to say after the first set of three miracles? Because there's only so much you could say. Um, but what I love about the Word of God is that as you study it, uh, new and fresh insights keep popping out and it's not because of what I've done but it's because of the Holy Spirit really uh, just showing what it is that he wants us to read and what I realized is that you can say so much about the miracles primarily because miracles are actually signs in fact, in the Gospel of John, John the writer doesn't call miracles miracles. He calls them signs. And the reason why he does this is because miracles are designed to be signposts. What do signposts do? They point us to something else. Right? This is why if you see a restroom sign that points you left, you don't stop at the sign and use the bathroom at the sign. Because that's not the destination. The destination is where it's pointing to. That's what a sign does. And in the same way, the miracles of Christ are not designed for us to camp there and to worship the miracles. But rather, the miracles of Christ are designed to point us. Point us to something about Jesus. And more importantly, for this particular set of miracles, these miracles are actually pointing to something in us. In other words, the miracles in this particular passage are not designed for us to read them. They are designed to read us and to reveal something about our hearts. Because I think the way Matthew puts this together is he's begging us to ask this question. How do you and I respond to Jesus' authority? Like, how do you respond to Jesus working in your life? Because if you look at the stories, each story ends with a reaction from the people witnessing it. And these reactions are very different. They're vastly different from one another. So let's just take a look at them very quickly here. In verse 27, at the end of the calming of the sea story, it says this, and the men marveled. They're like, whoa, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him? In verse 34, uh, that's the second story of the healing of the two uh, demoniacs. In verse 34, it says this, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. They said, get out. Jesus, that's how they reacted. And then finally, verse 8, it says this in chapter 9, the last story of the healing of the paralytic. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And then they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And so you see, one marveled, uh, one said, get out, and the other one uh, simply is afraid and glorifies God. And so what we're going to be doing in this particular sermon is each, actually, each point is going to follow each story. And we're going to be asking that question, how do you respond to Jesus' authority? Because this is how they responded. And so here's our three points. If you're writing notes, you can take these three points down. Uh, and I kind of gave myself a little pat on the back this week because um, they all rhyme. So the first point is a doubt. Uh, the second point is get out. And then the third point is devout. Um, a little tribute to Dr. Seuss, I guess, for all those rhymes that I read. Well, anyhow, let's dive into our points for today, okay? Uh, uh, let's dive into doubt, okay? This first point, we're going to look at the calming of the storm story, okay? If you remember, Pastor Joyce said this last week. She said that when Jesus asks them to follow him across the sea, this is akin to a CEO or a manager saying to you, hey, come and help me start a new corporation. Help me to start a new business. And so there's a lot of risk. 
right? You have to imagine that at that time, it's not like they were traveling like we do today. People here, we travel like crazy. But then they never traveled that much. They lived, they grew up, they died in a particular city, and they never traveled to other towns or villages. And yet when Jesus says, come and follow me, he immediately goes across the Sea of Galilee. Now, his disciples had been on the Sea of Galilee, but they've never been across the Sea of Galilee. And so for them, this was a new adventure. This was a new start for them. And, and you have to imagine, right, right at the beginning, of their discipleship, all of a sudden they experience this storm that is catastrophic. Right? It's, a, it's like this, right? Imagine the CEO manager says, come follow me, I'm going to start a new business. And then one or two weeks in, the CEO or manager says, hey, by the way, um, we ran out of funds. We can't pay you. And, um, and actually for quarter one, like just for quarter one, we're going to have to raise another $5 million just for us to stay afloat. You'd be like, what did you invite me to, you, you, you scoundrel? You know, like, what are you doing? Um, and the same way, this is exactly what happens. Jesus hypes himself up. He's like, the kingdom of God is here. Like, I'm bringing this new kingdom. Come follow me. And then they get into this boat, and all of a sudden, they're going to die. They're going to perish. They're like, what? Is, you, you told us you protect us. You told us you'd save us. You told us this new kingdom is coming, and you were going to head it up. And, but now we're just going to die. We're just going to die. And you have to think, this storm was so large. It was such a great storm because think about it this way, right? If you're on an airplane... And, uh, and one of the airplane uh, flight attendants comes up to you and is like, say your prayers, everyone. We're going down, right? And you're experiencing all this turbulence. You'd be like, okay, I think we're going to die now. We, be we better say our prayers, right? Because you know this. Airplane flight attendants, they've, they've been through turbulence. They know what turbulence is like. And if they're saying the ship is going down, then the ship is going down. And in the same way, these, these disciples were fishermen in Galilee. They had experienced many, many storms on the Sea of Galilee. And yet now they're saying, we're perishing. We're going to die. And yet look at this. This is amazing, right? Jesus, Jesus, who was never a fisherman, he was a carpenter by trade, right? He's sleeping on the boat. He's sleeping on the boat. And, and when they wake him up, right, Jesus replies to them in verse 26, and he says this, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And this is where I want to hone in on. Jesus says to them, O you of little faith. Do you remember? Go, go into your minds now, especially if you're with us in the, in the last sermon series. Where does this phrase come from? It comes from us to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where he's talking about the birds of the air and how he takes care of them, how the lilies of the field, he takes care of them. He says, oh, you of little faith, right? Look at Matthew 6.30. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and, and tomorrow is thrown in the, into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? And this is the exact same word in the Greek. In the Greek, that phrase, oh, you of little faith, is the word oligos pistos, which simply means little faith. You know, another way of translating this word is, it's, it's, it's the word doubt. That's what doubt is. It's when you lack faith, when you have little faith. And this is how the disciples respond to this task, is they respond with a lack of faith, with doubt. And there are so many of us in this place that respond to Jesus' power and authority with doubt, with uncertainty. For example, some of you in here are Christians, and maybe uh, your leader or a pastor or somebody came up to you and said, Hey, man, you maybe should start serving. Or maybe you should start attending this thing. Or maybe you should come out to the women's retreat or the women's Bible study. And your first question, by the way, questions are not bad, but your first question was like, but I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I have the gifts. I don't know if I have the skills. But I think Jesus would say, hey, don't you realize that I'm not relying upon your gifts. You're relying upon me to do the work through you. And so whereas you have a thousand questions and you lack faith and you're like, oh, but how, how is God going to use me here? How is God going to use me there? How? God is saying, hey, do you trust me? Do you have faith that I'm going to 
that you'll be able to persevere and that I'll be able to use you in this particular ministry. But in fact, there are also many of you in this place who don't believe, who are seeking Christ, and maybe you're here for those very reasons. You don't quite have faith yet, and as Pastor Derek was sharing, we're so, so glad that you're here. And I really mean that. I truly mean that. And the reason why I'm glad you're here is because we live in a time and in a generation where actually uh, listening to contrarian opinions is very few and far in between. We all have our echo chambers. We want to listen uh, and be with people who are exactly like us, believe exactly like us. But you are here today listening to somebody who maybe disagrees with you on a host of things. And so I, I'm, that's why I'm so glad you're here is because you're here listening to contrarian views. And in my view, I believe the reason why you can sit through a presentation like this is because I believe this is that Jesus is actually working in you right now. That the Holy Spirit is wanting you to be here. And look, many of you in this place, when you read, right, especially if you're not a believer here, when you read these miracle stories, you respond with doubt and skepticism. You're like, there's no way this could have happened. There's no way. There's no way Jesus calmed the storm. There's no way he healed the paralytic. There's no way he casted out demons like this. This must be uh, something that happened over time as people were telling stories or something like that. Like, uh, they just kind of grew the stories into this legendary kind of mythical stories. And, 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 and you have good reasons. You have good reasons to believe those things. Right? And you might even say it like this, right? You might even pose it like this. You might say, hey, Eric, you know what? Um, I, would you believe, right? Let's just say you're a police detective, Eric, and you uh, were in a crime case, and you were researching this robbery, you were investigating this robbery, and you were talking to this one eyewitness. And the one eyewitness said, I saw the robber. I saw it. He was masked, but he was a robber. He was there. And, and here's what happened, Eric. Uh, uh, he levitated over the wall. And then he landed on the other side. And then, he, and then he walked into the door. He just like passed through the walls of the door. Would you believe him, Eric? And of course, all of us would be like, no ways, no ways. You would immediately disbelieve him. Why? Not because of who he is or what this eyewitness is saying, but simply because of the content of his story. Because you would never believe somebody who tells something that miraculous. And so in and of itself, the story itself is disbelievable. And so this is why for you, you may disbelieve these stories because any kind of story, any eyewitness who tells this kind of story, it has to be unbelievable. It has to be untrue. Why would you believe anybody else if they were telling a similar story? And so the argument against miracles is so simple. We wouldn't believe anyone's testimony if it included the supernatural. And so why do you do it here? And this is where I want to bring in some C.S. Lewis, because C.S. Lewis is always really great at these kinds of things. And C.S. Lewis was an Oxford professor. And listen to what he writes in this book uh, um, about miracles, in fact. And listen to what he says. And I'll, I'll, parse, I'll, I'll parse this apart as we go along. He says, for this reason, the question whether miracles occur can never be answered simply by experience. So he's going to say this in, in later, just in a second. He's going to say you can't rely upon your experiences to determine whether miracles are true or not. You have to take a step back and look at your philosophy before you look at the miracle. You have to look at your philosophy before you look at your experiences, okay? So listen on. He says every event which might claim to be a miracle is in the last resort something presented to our senses, something seen, heard, touched, smelled, or tasted, and our senses are not infallible. If anything, extraordinary seems to have happened. We can always say that we have been the victims of an illusion. If we hold the philosophy which excludes the supernatural, this is what we will always say. Do you hear what he's saying? If we say that miracles can never happen, if the supernatural can never happen, that means that even if the supernatural were to happen, we would discount all of it. Because we began with the philosophy, not with our experiences. You see that? This is why he says you got to go back and not look at your experiences, but look at your philosophy. What do you believe about the supernatural? Can these things occur? 
Look at what he goes on to say. What we learn from experience depends on the kind of philosophy we bring to, the, to experience. It is therefore useless to appeal to experience before we have settled as well as we can the philosophical question. For example, one of the first biblical scholars to begin doubting the miracles in the scriptures was a guy by the name of David Frederick Strauss. And David Frederick Strauss came from a very similar vantage point. He was like, these miracles can't be true. They can't be true at all. And so what happened was, in his life, one of his best friends was healed miraculously by a German pastor. A German pastor, a German Lutheran pastor came over to his friend's house, healed his friend miraculously. In the name of Jesus, prayed over him. And his friend, who he had known, could not walk for decades, all of a sudden got up out of his wheelchair and started walking. And, and what, did, what, did, what did David Frederick Strauss say? He didn't say, wow, an act of power. He said this. He said, ah, well, psychosomatically, he must have been unable to walk. In other words, it was a mental issue. He just tricked himself into believing he couldn't walk. And then when, his, when the German uh, Lutheran pastor prayed for him, then he could walk. You see, there's always an explanation for something if you believe, if you start with the philosophical uh, predisposition that there are no such things as miracles. And so in other words, let me put it to you like this. If there is a God and he wanted to prove to you he was God, he could never prove it to you. Why? Because you already eliminated all miracles. Right? If he came to you and he started walking on water in front of your eyes, you would disbelieve it. Immediately, philosophically, in your world, you can't have miracles. And so you'd automatically disapprove of it. Even if, uh, 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 even if God came to you and he calmed the storm in front of your eyes, you would disbelieve it. You would just say, oh, that's coincidence. Why? Because philosophically, you come with that predisposition. Even if Jesus Christ came and he levitated into the sky, which, by the way, he did, right? At the ascension, he levitated into the sky. You would disbelieve it. Why? Because, well, that, that doesn't happen. Even if Jesus Christ came to you and grew your limbs again, which, by the way, he did in the Gospels when he healed the lep people who had leprosy. He grew their limbs again. This is what we believe. He we probably saw nose grow and ears grow. In fact, if you remember, Peter cuts off the, the Roman soldier's ear. And what does Jesus do? He grabs the ear and he glues it back onto the guy's head. <laughs> and yet, if you come with a philosophical predisposition saying, well, miracles can't happen, you're always going to have another explanation, a more naturalistic explanation to it. And so what I'm trying to say is this. Look. I'm not trying to say that you should believe all miracles. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we should be gullible. People in the Bible were certainly not gullible. There were lots of miracle stories, lots of healing stories going around. They did their investigatory work. So I'm not saying be gullible. But what I am saying is this. I am saying this, that if God did want to prove himself to you, wouldn't it be the only way that he could prove it to you is through an act of power? Isn't it through a miracle of some sort? And here in the scriptures, we have that. We have Jesus coming to us and saying miracle after miracle after miracle. You know what's interesting about this guy, David Frederick Strauss, is that he was influenced by another philosopher uh, named David Hume. And if you know anything about David Hume, David Hume uh, said that only ignorant and barbarous nations could affirm miracles. If someone said that today, do you know what we'd call them? We'd call them a racist. And in fact, David Hume was a racist. He believed that there was no such, he doubted the exceptional persons of color. He believed that people of color could not do anything exceptional. And so there was a guy, for example, by the name of Francis Williams who could recite poetry in English and in Latin. And do you know what David Hume said about him? He said that even Paris can recite poetry because he didn't believe uh, uh, people of color could do anything exceptional. Um, in, in fact, uh, there was another, um, another theologian by the name of Rudolf Boltman. You don't have to know these names, but Rudolf Boltman, he is one of those guys who believes that only, uh, only people in the modern world, no one in the modern world could believe in miracles. 
But yet, think about this. He excludes everybody, everybody, practically everybody in the world, traditional Jews, Christians, Muslims, traditional tribal religionists, basically everybody in the mid-20th century, uh, sorry, everybody in the world except for, except for mid-20th century Western academic elites. Only his tribe, basically, is the ones who don't believe miracles can happen. And the whole entire world is open to these things. We call this colonization. We call this thinking that you're better than other people. We call this pride. And so you see, I'm not saying, again, be gullible, but what I am saying is this, can we open up our minds and our hearts to being able to say, okay, if God did want to prove himself, wouldn't he have to do it through something supernatural? And wouldn't Jesus have to have done miracles that people have eyewitnessed? Wouldn't that have to be the case? So this leads us to our second point, get out, okay? Let's move on to the second miracle, okay? In this miracle, Jesus now lands on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He gets out and immediately is encountered by these two demon-possessed men. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate it when there's a detour, okay? You're on the road, you're driving, and there's construction, you got to go around, and then there's another construction, you got to go more around, right? This is what was happening. There was a detour. These men, these, these demon-possessed men had uh, uh, spiritually locked up and had been oppressing this village for many, many uh, years now. And they had blocked this whole entrance to this place. And so Jesus encounters them. He rebukes the spirits out of them. He drives them into these pigs, and they all die in this uh, great big fall off of a cliff. And here's the interesting thing now, okay? In verse 33, okay, it begins to take shape into what we would typically think of a miracle story. Because what happens in other miracle stories, right? Uh, let's take the Samaritan woman in John 4, right? He does this miracle, right? He, he, he basically tells the woman about her whole life, even though he's met her only for the first time. This miracle, the, you know, the Samaritan woman is amazed that she basically, he basically read her whole life. She goes to the village, right? She tells everyone about Jesus, and she says, come and see who I've met, the Messiah, right? It kind of takes the same shape in this story. He does this miracle. He casts out the demons into the pigs. The pigs drown. The herdsmen flee. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So they're like evangelizing. They're sharing this news of what's happened. And then look at verse 34. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus and when they saw him. Okay, let's stop there. So up until this point, we think, okay, you're probably thinking, and Matthew wants us to think this. You think these people are going to come out and celebrate you. Jesus, wow, you you freed us from spiritual oppression. You freed us from these demoniacs. You freed us from all of this stuff. Praise your name. Hallelujah. You're God. You marvel, right? That's not what they do. Look at what it says uh, uh, at the end there. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. It's a little twist that Matthew's putting in the story. You think they're going to celebrate Jesus, but they actually ask him to leave. In fact, that word leave their region or beg them to leave their region is two words in the Greek. It's parakaleo for, um, uh, for one word, which para, if you know parallel, right? You walk alongside somebody. Kaleo means call. You call them. So imagine this, right? You have the whole village coming out and walking alongside Jesus and being like, get out of here. Metabino means to change directions. They want him to change his direction and to leave their city. That's the second Greek word there. They come alongside him and they essentially kick Jesus out of the city. And some of us, we react to Jesus' authority the same exact way. Maybe Jesus is working in your life right now, this moment. And maybe right now, he's working in your life, but the way you see it is like, Jesus, just get out of my life. You're messing it up. Because here's what happens, right? This is why people want him to leave the village. Because although he frees them spiritually... He actually destroys their property and their wealth. 
And maybe Jesus is doing the same thing to you. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe you, you don't have enough finances. And, 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 and yet Jesus is trying to free you from the bondage and sin of slavery to money through our property and our wealth. And yet you are just angry and upset. And you're like, Jesus, get out of my life. What are you doing? Perhaps we lost on a huge investment because of our partner's neglect. And he's trying to free you from the love of money. And all you can see is, Jesus, you're making a mess in my life right now. Get out. Perhaps we idolized this person in our last relationship and Jesus ended that relationship for very, very good reasons because he didn't want you to be so, like, to idolize this one particular person. He wanted you to worship him. And so he ended this relationship and yet you're so angry because you wanted this relationship so badly. And in fact, so many of us, we may not doubt God's power as in our first point we talked about, but we will doubt his goodness. You know what's interesting is that the very, uh, towards, the, towards the midsection of the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus begins to exercise more demons, do you know what they say about him? They don't say, oh, you, don't, you lack the power or the authority to cast out demons. They clearly see that. But what they begin to question is the source of his goodness. Look at me in Matthew 9, 34. It says this, but the Pharisee said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Look at Matthew 12, 24. It'll be up here on the screens. It says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they say it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And so in your life, you're thinking, you know what, Jesus? Yeah, I believe you're working my life, but I, I, man, you, you're not good. This power is from something else. Stop working my life. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Mere Christianity. And I want you to really listen to this quote because I love this quote so much. And it's a very, very image-filled quote, so just follow along with me. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. Imagine that you're home. And God comes in to rebuild that house. So he's going to do renovations right now, okay? And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently... He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? He starts knocking down walls. He starts taking off your roof. He starts like doing all these different things that you're like, what are you doing? Look at what he says. The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Friends, if Jesus is working your life and it's starting to hurt more than it helps, I'm telling you, do not question his goodness. He's doing something new in your life. He's doing something new. Look for that. Seek. What is, it, what is it that he's trying to free you from in this moment? Because I'm telling you, our God is a good God, and he's trying to do something new in your life. This leads us to our third and final point, devout. Let's look at the third and final miracle, but let's look at this a little bit differently, okay? Let's look at the end first and then work our way backwards, okay? Look at verse 8 with me. When the crowd saw it, when they saw the paralyzed man being healed, okay? When they saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is really weird to me. When Jesus calms the storm, I would have been freaked out by that. I think you would have been too. If somebody stands up on them, they're sleeping, they're groggy, they're like, wind waves, shut up. And then the winds, it just calms. In fact, the scriptures use this word great calm. That word great is megas, mega calm. It's like glass. I would have been afraid. I would have been like, oh my, what is this? 
In fact, when he cast out the demoniacs, I would have been like, holy moly, like what? I would have been afraid there. But it's weird. After he heals a paralytic man, then they get afraid. They're like, oh, you healed a paralyzed man. Like what's going on here? And I think what's going on here is this, okay? Just follow with me for a second, okay? Imagine with me, you're, you're with a magician, okay? You and I are with a magician, and the magician is doing all these card tricks, okay? They're doing sleight of hand tricks, and, you know, they're, they're doing all these tricks, and you're like, whoa, that's so cool, crazy, you're happy, you're having a good time, right? You and I are having a good time. Uh, but then all of a sudden, the, the tone starts to shift, and they're like, now I'm going to do stuff that is going to really impress you. I'm going to read your minds, I have the ability to read people's minds, okay? And so you're like, huh? You're like, okay, cool. Like, what trick are you going to do? And they, they say this. They say, I'm going to tell you something that only you know. Like your mama don't know about it. Your sisters, your brothers, even your spouse, they don't know anything about it. You are the only person on earth right now that knows about this in your life. And I'm going to tell it to you right now. And so they write on a piece of paper this thing and they hand it to you. You open it up. You're like, oh my goodness. Right? I think in that moment, you and I would be a little terrified. I think, our, I think we'd clench our butts just a little bit because we're like, oh my goodness, what is this? Like, because why? Because all of a sudden now, this person who claimed to be a magician is no longer just a magician, but now they're claiming to be something greater than that. Like they can actually read your minds. And you'd be like, what in the world? Like what's going on here? And in the same way, I think this is what's happening. Look at what Jesus says. He, when the paralytic comes in, he's paralyzed, but he's like, your sins are forgiven. What is he doing there? He's doing something only God can do. And in fact, that's what they say. They're like, you're blaspheming. Only God can do this. And then he says this, so that you might know that I can forgive sins on earth. Right? Here's a sign that I'm going to give you so that you know I have authority to do this. I'm going to heal this man. Rise up and walk. And then he walks. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm not even just like a prophet. None of the prophets in the Old Testament did this. Elijah, Elisha, Moses, nobody forgave sins. Only God forgave sins. And now all of a sudden he's saying, I can forgive sins. And I think this is why the people are like, and then he just healed this guy. He's proving that he can forgive sins. Oh my goodness, what is he saying about himself? And in fact, if you go back and you read this passage, this is what it's all about. It's all about Jesus' identity. In each story, Jesus' identity is coming into question. If you go back to the first story, right, it says this in verse 27, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? That word man is the Greek word anthropoi, where we get the word anthropology, the study of human beings. That's what that word means, human beings. What kind of human being? They don't understand. He's not a human being. He's not just a human being. Right? In, in fact, later on, we learned that the only person that can calm storms or control the weather is God himself. If you remember in the book of Jonah, right, Jonah, what happens? He throws himself overseas so that God will calm the storm. And in fact, Jesus later on in Matthew 20, uh, 12, verses 41 says this, something greater than Jonah is here. He's saying, look, do you understand who I am? I'm not just some human being. I'm divine. In fact, right, in the next story with the healing, with the, with the demons being cast out, guess who the only people that know Jesus' identity? It's the demons, and they shudder in fear over it. They're like, hey, just send us into the pigs. And he's like, go. And they go. It's the people who escort him out that don't understand his identity. They don't understand who he is. And now here, finally, at this last miracle, they're beginning to understand. They're like, who is this? Why is he saying this? They call him a man at the very end, but, they're, but still, they're beginning to understand through the fear who this is. Because who is, who is right, throughout the Old Testament, who is being afraid of again and again and again? It's God. It's Yahweh. Every time Yahweh shows up, the prophets, the people of God are utterly afraid of Yahweh. And this is what's happening here. They're beginning to understand that he is divine. In fact, this term son of man, you think it's about his humanity. 
But it's actually not. It's about his divinity. It goes back to Daniel 7 when it says the Son of Man will come in clouds of glory. It's talking about his divinity. Do you want to grow in your discipleship? It starts with how you see Jesus. And are you afraid of who he is? Look, I know, I know, I know fear is not a good thing to talk about in our context. And for most contexts, I would say fear is a bad thing. But in this one section, in this one context of God's identity, this is very, very true of our faith. We need to start with being afraid of who God is. Not because of what he's going to do to us, not because he can thrash us or send us to hell or do something, but fear because of just who he is. Do you understand the power and the authority that lives in Jesus? Because if you did, you would begin to be very, very afraid. Our prayer lives would be transformed. Do you understand? If you understood the power and the authority that was in Jesus, you and I would not pray standing we would not pray sitting we would not even be praying on our knees we would be flat faced on the ground prostrate because of who God is do you understand you know I took so much time this week just pondering this mystery of who God is and his power and his authority and I kept telling myself man how do I communicate this to you how do I get you into this feeling of understanding who God is and just how much power he has and so I'm going to tell you a slew of stories, and I'm going to try to get at this a little bit. But, but man, have you truly stood before power? Like, have you ever truly stood before something so powerful that you were just, like, wrecked by it? I know the first time this kind of this feeling overcame me was actually at the Woodland Park Zoo here in Seattle. I think I've shared this story before, but I'll share it again. But I was with my kids. We, we went up to the gorilla exhibition, okay? And if you know the Woodland Park uh, Zoo gorilla exhibition, there's this huge glass, like, window, Okay, that separates you and the gorillas. And the gorilla was kind of sitting down. He was just chilling there. And then all of a sudden, there was like 10, or, 10 to 15 of us standing around. All of a sudden, this gorilla got up uh, from, his, from his seat, and he just started walking this way. He went like this. He walked back like this. And we were like, whoa, whoa, he's walking around, right? And all of a sudden, he went like this, and then he just like ran as fast as humanly possible, like at, well, as fast as gorilla-ly possible to the front. And then he like stopped just short of the glass, and he stopped here, and everyone, like everyone like yelled like <gasps> like gasps of air like audible gasps of air and and people were like oh my right and he just stood there huffing and puffing and in that moment i was like oh my god i was like this is power like i thought football players were powerful i thought weightlifters but this gorilla is powerful and then he did it again he went back he went back he went he went like this he went all the way to the back and he ran again as full like full charge and everybody again was like <laughs> right even though there was this thick piece of glass in between us we were just so in awe of this power. You know, I remember the first time I ever picked up a gun. I don't own a gun. I don't shoot guns on a regular basis. But I, I, one of my pastor friends for his bachelor party uh, wanted to go shoot guns. And so I, was, I think I was 26 or 27 at the time. And uh, I went to go shoot my first gun. And I remember, man, I, I, it was just like a little Glock, right? It was like a little like 45 millimeter Glock or whatever. And I remember picking it up for the first time. And I remember thinking like, oh my like, this is so crazy. Like, this is so, like, and I was just in fear of this gun. I was in awe of the gun, and, and I picked it up, and my hand started, like, shaking as I was picking it up because I realized what power is held in this gun. And, and even cops and people in the military or people who handle guns all the time, they are still in awe of it. This is why, like, if you go to a gun range, they tell you always point it forward, never, like, go this way with it. If you ever try to go this way, they'll, like, they'll, like yell at you, they'll shout at you, they'll curse you out there because they understand the power of the gun. Friends, do you understand the power of God? Do you understand his true power and his true authority? 
I mean, I couldn't put this any other way. Like, have, like imagine if you could just stand before the sun itself and you could grasp the bigness of the sun. I mean, you wouldn't be there being like, yo, what's up, homeboy? You'd be like, you'd be in fear and in terror because you're standing before true power. This is what the stories are trying to get at, friends. Do you understand the mystery and the awe and the wonder of who God is? That when the name of Jesus is spoken, darkness shudders because of his name. Do you understand that demons quake in fear when the name of Jesus is pronounced? Do you understand that death itself is conquered because of Jesus himself? Do you understand that everything in this world bows its knees to Jesus Christ because of his power and his authority? Do you understand? And man, friends, I'm telling you, you have to understand this. You have to understand. You might be thinking, Eric, why are you so fixed on this fear thing? But I'm telling you, if you understand this, you will then understand the good news of the gospel. You will understand his love and his grace all the more, friends. You know, I, I want to read a Tim Keller quote from you. It's from one of his Christmas books, his, one of his Advent books. But listen to what he says here. He says, the distance between the sun and the earth, the earth and the sun is 93 million miles. Okay, 93 million miles between the earth and the sun. And if that was encapsulated in a sheet of paper, okay, was no more than a thickness of a sheet of paper, the nearest star to earth would be a stack of pa uh, pa paper 75, uh, 70 feet high. Just the next star would be 70 feet high if 93 million miles was one sheet of paper. That's, go outside after this and go look at our building. I think our building's like maybe 70 feet high. Keep in mind, uh, sorry, uh, the, the, di the diameter of the Milky Way, that's our galaxy, would be a stack of papers over 300 miles high. That's Seattle to Portland, friends. That's 300 miles. Some of you are doing the Seattle to Portland bike ride. That's 300 miles. Straight up into the sky, just of stacks of paper to the next, just our galaxy. Keep in mind that there are more galaxies in the universe than we can number. There are more, it seems, than dust specks in the air or grains of sand on the seashore. There are more galaxies than sands in the seashore. And now keep this in mind. Now, if Jesus Christ holds all this together with just a word of his power, is he the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? Is he the kind of person you'd be like, oh, Jesus, help me with my job. Oh, Jesus, help me with this, Jesus, you know. Is that the kind of person you ask as your assistant? Or is that the kind of person you fall flat on your face and you worship? You know, I was meditating on this all week. And man, like every time I meditate on it, I just realized my problems are so small. Like I, like I just started feeling this, man, like, like for me, one of the biggest problems in my life is like my kids. My, my kids, are like, I worry about my kids all the time. I'm like, what are they going to be like in the future? Are they going to be smart? Are they going to have lots of friends? Are they going to be, you know, uh, people who have good jobs and make, uh, you know, who, who, who do great things for Jesus? And all these, I have all these questions and I worry about it all the time. And when I started thinking about the bigness and the goodness and the greatness of our God, man, my problems started getting really small. They almost felt insignificant. And the reason why is because I started feeling insignificant. When I started beholding the power and the glory of who Christ is, I started feeling so small, so insignificant. And this is why I grew afraid. Because I realized in that moment, I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not. I'm just, the, I'm a vapor, the Bible says. I'm a vapor. I'm a mist that's just here today, gone tomorrow. And as you begin realizing this in light of who Jesus is, this is why fear begins to set in. This is why the fear of the Lord is so important for us, friends. Look, do you know what Psalm 8, 4 says? It says this. I look up at your macro skies. This is the message version, by the way. 
dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. Then I look at my micro self and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? Do you understand what the psalmist is saying? Why, why do you even care about us? Why do you even think about us? You know, I was talking about the sermon with our staff this week, and Pastor Clara made some great observations. And when we're talking about this, we're saying, imagine with me a celebrity, and, and you know, name the celebrity of your choice, walks into our midst here today, okay? Um, let's just say it's, you know, I don't know, for some of you, you might be part of the BTS army, right? BTS just starts marching right into the middle, okay? And imagine, right, what's the first, you, 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 first of all, you'd be like, oh my, oh my, right? You'd start going crazy. Secondly, you'd be afraid, right? Out of all the people in the room, you should probably want to talk to them, but you'd probably talk to them the last, just because of who they are, just because of their power and their authority. But thirdly, you know what would happen? Is if, if BTS ever went your way, okay, or name your celebrity, went your way, and just looked over at you, glanced at you, looked you in the eye and said, hello, you'd be, ah, right? You would just start melting. you just melt, right? And then let's just say, like, you, you, you just reach out your hand, right? You're like, hey, BTS, right? And BTS just, just grazed your hand. You'd be like, I'm never washing this ever again. I'm tucking it away. You'd never wash it again. But you know what, like if I looked you into the eyes and I said, hello, you know what you guys would be? You guys would be like, thanks, but no thanks, I don't care. <laughs> Every time I've looked you in the eyes and I've said hello, you guys are like, hey, how's it going? Every time your friends have looked you in the eyes and said hello, you're like, hey, Bob, hey, Julie, hey, whatever, right? It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter to you. You know why? Because they don't have power and authority. We don't have that power and authority, but these celebrities do. And when a celebrity does something so simple, like look your way and say hi, it means the world to you. Why? Because of who they are. And this is what the psalmist is describing. He's saying, do you understand that God looks your way? And do you understand why you have to understand the fear and the authority of God? Because he looks your way. And But not only that, but do you know what the gospel says? The gospel says this, that this God with all power didn't just look your way. He died for you. He didn't just brush you on the shoulder and say, good job. He didn't just give you a little pat on the back. He didn't just give you a little handwritten card. He died for you and for me. This is why the gospel is so transformative, friends. It is only transformative when you begin understanding who Jesus is. If you just say, Jesus is my homeboy, he's my whatever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Your homeboy died for you. Okay, great. But God, God died for you. He gave it all for you. He loved you and me. He thought about you. He planned your life. He did all of these things for you and for me, friends. And this radically transforms any person that can begin to understand this truth. Do you understand? Do you understand who loves you? Do you understand who thinks about you? Do you understand who it is that died for you, friends? Do you realize that this God of all power and authority did not use it to condemn us, but he came to give us life and life abundant, friends? And this is the kind of God that is worth following. This is the God who says, come, follow me. This is the God who says, if you follow me, you will have life and life abundant. This is the God worth following. Friends, this God is worth following more than any celebrity, more than any philosophy in life. This God is who we turn and fix our eyes and we focus it on and we follow after. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, I've tried my best here to communicate your authority and your power, Lord, but only your Holy Spirit can deepen our thoughts. Only your Holy Spirit can deepen our meditation. And so I ask and pray, Holy Spirit, that you would deepen our hearts and our thoughts right now. Help us, God, to grasp the magnitude of your power. Help us to grasp, God, just how big and great and powerful you are, Lord. So much so, God, that we would begin to feel the fear of the Lord in our presence. 
May you help us, Lord, in this place, God, to understand the greatness of your love, the greatness of who you are. And Lord, we pray that you would transform us, God, through this meditation. Lord, in a moment, God, we're going to offer up our words, God, and these words feel almost insignificant, God, to the greatness of who you are, Lord. And yet, Lord, would you help us now to sing it with all of our hearts, with all of our beings, God. Would you help us to sing it out, God, and to give you the glory, honor, and praise that you deserve, Lord. And may we, God, find rest in giving you glory. God, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.